According to recent polls in the United States, a majority of Americans now consider the Bible to be fiction. Wow. It's a kind of cultural shift that I suspect, I suspect already took place in Europe back in the 20th century. But for the U.S., this is a kind of new tipping point makes it increasingly acceptable to oppose the Bible, to criticize the Bible, to debunk Christianity in general. In fact, it's become the more politically correct thing to do. It may sound like we're headed toward disaster. I think probably we are. <laughs> when you dispense with religion, then morality is in free fall. Now, of course, that's been where we're he we've been headed for some time now. Um, and now it's just becoming more and more officially accepted. Mm. But you've got to remember, to put it in perspective, in Jesus' day, the politically correct thing to do was to oppose Him, the Word of God incarnate, and everything He said. Mm. Opposing God to his very human face. That was politically correct. And yet, you know, Jesus' reasoning was always so superior to that of the religious leaders. And the more you listen to him, the more enamored you become of him and his way of thinking. We were in a series right now on growing in mature discipleship. And today we want to emphasize that growing in discipleship to Jesus means giving serious priority to his word, you personally. So I want you to think with me about that confrontation that the Sadducees had with Jesus over leveret marriage, what we read about just a few months ago in Matthew 22. It was first a practice and then it was codified in the law, Deuteronomy 25, where if a man died without leaving any offspring, his unmarried brother should marry his widow and raise up a child as an heir to the deceased man. We understand that in ancient Israel, passing on the family name and the inheritance within a tribe, these were very important cultural values. And that's why this law came to be. So the Sadducees, who did not care a whit about leveret marriage, have we got that clear? They could have cared less. But they cared even less about the authority that Jesus was demonstrating in their temple and over the masses. So they come up with this... Uh, Extreme case, we shall call it. In fact, there's a name for it in Latin. It's called argumentum ad absurdum. <laughs> That's what this argument is actually called. Because they wanted to demonstrate the absurdity of the idea of resurrection, which they did not believe in. So they rehearse their case for Jesus. They, Moses told us about that if, if a man dies and leaves no children, his brother has to marry the widow. Raise up offspring in his name. So we got this case of ha that happened where there were seven brothers and the first one married and died and left no offspring. So 
his second brother had to marry her. And the same thing happened to him. And then the same thing happened to the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Does this sound like they're making it up? They were. <laughs> so they asked Jesus, now, at the resurrection, which they don't believe in, yeah, whose wife will she be of those seven, since all seven of them were married to her? They were so sure that this case was going to stump this uneducated backwater rabbi from Galilee. Right there is the greatest danger of religion. It can give you a false sense of security and leave you unchanged. If you are serious about following Christ, you don't want to remain unchanged. That's why we follow Him. Because we know how much we need to be changed. And we believe He's the only one who can really bring it about. Okay? And once you encounter Jesus' way of reasoning and you start living by His logic, you realize nothing else in life will satisfy. Nothing else can compare. So notice Jesus' straightforward response to those Sadducees. As we say in Spanish, no tenía pelos en la lengua. <laughs> no hair growing on his tongue. He just told them, you are in error because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. The word he uses here to be in error, uh, actually, or to err, can also mean to deceive oneself and to lead astray and to cause to wander. You see, ignorance of God's Word will negatively impact everything in your life. It will lead you astray. In fact, it can totally shipwreck all your attempts at Christian discipleship if you remain ignorant of God's Word. So, Jesus, after pointing out the source of their error, he goes on to explain to them that in the res resurrection, there will be no, no longer a place or a need for marriage. Our bodies will be different. Our bodies will be transformed. We'll live on a higher plane. You see, there are other, greater pleasures and delights to be enjoyed beyond those of the flesh. Can you imagine that? You're all trying, right? <laughs> Attempting. Can I get my mind up there to that level to imagine something greater than physical pleasures, earthly enjoyment? Yeah, there is something. Scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. There is something better than this life. Yeah. Where there will no longer be suffering and pain added in. Okay, so after proving the fallacy in their thinking on that point, Jesus doesn't leave it there, but he goes on to demonstrate their error in regard to the resurrection. Remember, they not only didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in miracles, they didn't believe in spirits, they didn't believe in angels, ah, all that stuff you can't see, they didn't believe in it. So Jesus said to them, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what Moses said? There you go. Sorry. Have you not read what God said to you? And actually, he said it to Moses. You got this? 
He said it to Moses, and Jesus said, whatever he said to Moses is also for you. So God said that for them, and they didn't pay attention. Specifically, God said, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And the crowds were just astonished. They just melted. Wow, listen at the logic of this guy. He put our great religious leaders who thought they owned the temple, he put them to shame. The ignorance because of their lack of knowledge of the Scripture. So, we conclude. Knowing the Scripture is fundamental to knowing and recognizing the truth. You want to recognize the truth? You want to be able to discern between truth and falsehood? You need to get into the Scripture. This is what's going to sharpen your criteria so that you understand what truth is. So you won't be deceived. So you'll have the right spiritual criteria. The, the Sadducees' problem wasn't, that they just, it wasn't just that they didn't know Scripture. It's that they therefore didn't know the author of Scripture. They hadn't let his perspective reformat their cynical selfishness. Actually, this was a serious problem for the Jews from way back, from Old Testament times. Jeremiah was the prophet who had to observe it painfully up close, firsthand. And he just told the people that God was threatening to bring disaster on them, but that really it was only going to be the fruit of their own schemes because they hadn't listened to God's words. They were not paying attention. Well, I think there's a formula for disaster if I ever heard one. Yeah, you got that? Just don't pay attention to God's word. Yeah, go ahead. Ignore God's word. Formula for disaster. You're going to reap what you sow. You remember the word does say that, doesn't it? We will reap what we sow. To complicate things even more, you and I live in this post-truth era. People don't believe in truth anymore. They have believed the lie that everything is relative. You know what? They're following in the Sadducees' footsteps. That was, that was the, the perspective of the Sadducees, basically. People don't want to be ruled by absolutes. They think they're too binding. Oh, no, give me my freedom. When, in fact, freedom comes from knowing God's truth, God's absolutes. That's why Jesus said, if you remain in my word, you will be truly my disciples, and the truth will make you free. Jesus' truth, the absolutes of his word. So truth will never cease to impact this word, this world, no matter how much people try to deny it. As Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will what? They'll pass away. But my word will never pass away. So God's truth cannot be dismissed from this earth just because a group of people find it offensive or inconvenient or not worth their time. You see, down through history, human culture has done everything possible to silence the Word of God. 
haven't we? And yet, while our culture's loudest shouting will ultimately come to naught, God's slightest whisper will prevail and endure. You can count on it. So why not connect up with the truth? In fact, the biblical parables about the Word of God tell us just how strong its impact is going to continue being until the end of time. I wonder if you've thought about these parables of the Word. There are a bunch of them. I call them parables. You might just call them metaphors. So we've got three columns here to look at. The Scripture reference over there on, the, on your left. In the middle will be the parable or the meta- metaphor. And on this side, a brief explanation. The first one, we've already sung about it. It's a lamp, isn't it? According to Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, because it gives light. It reveals the truth. It teaches us the way to go. Yeah. What else? Jeremiah was the prophet who said uh, on God's behalf, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? That rock is your heart and mine, a heart of sin. It breaks and shatters that rock so that the light can get in. And the fire that burns away the dross. You see, that's the function of the Word of God. Or how about this one from Deuteronomy 8, where God says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's our true bread. It's what God is saying. That's what you need to nourish your soul on, is the bread of the Word. Or there's Jesus' parable in Mark 4, where he says, the farmer sows the Word. That means the Word is like a seed. Jesus was the sower, the one who sowed the seed in our lives. And that seed bears fruit, it grows, it germinates, and bears the fruit of God's truth in our lives. Or James uses the idea that God's Word is like a mirror. He says anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says... It's like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And James is saying that's not what we should do. We should look into the mirror of God's truth and remember, oh, this is what I'm like. This is what I'm really like. I need God's help. I need his saving hand on my life. Or then there's that analogy of the word being the sword of the spirit. That's the apostle Paul in Ephesians and then in Hebrews, the Word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So it's that sword that we need in our lives. Isaiah compares it to rain and snow. He says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven, they do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed Seed for the sower, bread for the eater, so is my word. Just like that. It accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. It will cause our hearts to germinate and grow, produce the fruit that God is wanting. Well, besides that, we have the idea that Jesus himself is the logos, the word made 
flesh for our sakes. And besides that, God breathed. The Word of God comes from His mouth. It is His own breath, which, you know, is the same word in Greek and Hebrew for spirit. It's God's spirit who is breathing out His Word, making it clear for us. Okay, so the, the variety in all these metaphors suggests what a variety of functions the Word of God is intended to play in our spiritual formation. In fact, we could look at that final text there from 2 Timothy just to review a little bit what those functions are. You remember this passage, how all scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, instructing in righteousness, all of those things, training in righteousness, all of those things are what are accomplished by God's Word. That's the reason the Word uses all those different metaphors to try to stimulate our thinking and to attract us to God's Word. It is all of these things and more if we will let it be. It's our resource for salvation, for correction, for transformation, for renewal. But you know what? It won't do anything for you if you don't access it. you got to access it regular, regularly and let it format your hard disk. That's another metaphor we use from today, isn't it? I think that's what Paul was getting at in Romans 12 when he tells us not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How are you going to get your mind renewed? The implication is here, everybody, your mind needs renewing constantly. Where do you get that renewal? This is it, folks. It's God's Word. That's where we get the renewal. You see, there is no such thing as the Christian life apart from saturating your mind with God's truth. Are you with me on that? Okay, you're kind of quiet this morning. need to make sure you're staying with me. So, if you're with me, then what is your plan for assimilating and practicing the whole counsel of God? Remember that phrase from the Apostle Paul? He was talking to the church at Ephesus. Mm. He had been careful to proclaim the whole counsel of God to them. Well, the whole counsel of God, well, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes you may think I'm trying to cram the whole counsel of God into one of my sermons, right? <laughs> yeah. They taught me that saying early in my time in, in Spain, el que mucho abarca, poco aprieta. <laughs> one who tries to get around a whole lot, he doesn't hold on tight to very much. Well, I'm counting on you holding on tight to as much of this as you can so that you will be motivated to get into God's Word because there is a lot there. Well, I have a lot of reformatting that needs to happen in my life. Do you? All right. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> Confession time. All right. Good. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by osmosis just because I come to church every Sunday. Oh, no. It doesn't happen like that. It's got to be intentional. Small bites are what we need, but on a regular basis, every day. The problem of the Sadducees was that they were ignorant of Scripture. Oh, they might have read it, but they hadn't believed it. They hadn't believed the gravity of their condition. They didn't see themselves as lost or enslaved 
or dead in their sins. Oh, no, not us. Oh, they were deceived by their own religion, thinking everything was going to be fine. So, consequently, they were building their house on sand, and it would not last. By the way, the Sadducees ceased to exist not long after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. They ceased to exist as a group. Wow. They weren't paying attention very well, were they? Well, building your house on, your, on the sand is exactly what you do when you excuse yourself for not being really devoted to God's Word. Or when you justify your neglect of God's Word. You rationalize your failure to practice it. Our ways are not God's ways. And therefore, if we don't get into the Word, disaster will be the result. It'll be merely the fruit of our inner schemes, reaping what we've sown. All right, so let's try to get practical with this. Some parts of Scripture are clearly more urgent than others. Would you agree to that? So where do we begin? Yeah, you, you will if you get into it. You'll realize you can bog down some places. Where should we begin? What do we really need to emphasize? Well, I always say the Gospels are where you've got to start for introducing us to Jesus, to getting, and, and you start and you continue and you finish in the Gospels. You never neglect the Gospels because that's like reviewing your old photo albums or something, you know. Oh, is that what we looked like back then? This is what Jesus looks like. And when we say this is what Jesus looks like, we're saying this is what God looks like. He came to reveal his Father, didn't he? You need, we need regular refreshing of the portrait that we have of Jesus, of God in our hearts. It's the Gospels. Or if you want to go for emotional intelligence, you got to get into the Psalms, folks. This is where I take the men at men's prayer breakfast. <laughs> We men are especially lacking in emotional intelligence. Guys, we got to get into the Psalms. That's where we work through our difficult emotions with the Lord before Him. Um, if it's you want to grow in discernment, dealing with problems, got to get into those New Testament letters. Man, they were full of all kinds of stuff like that. And church problems, got to get into Acts of the Apostles. Wow, a lot of good uh, resources there. And if you're going to go deeper into the background of God's people and His ways, of course, you got all those resources in the Old Testament. Yeah, eventually you get to it all. But in the process, you give yourself permission to read lightly through some sections. You got me? Some sections can bog you down because of the language, those detailed instructions about sacrifices, those repetitious instructions about ceremonial law, the genealogies, etc. I know it's easy to get bogged down. Of course, I'm talking to the young people here, you know. They're the ones that especially have this problem, right? Okay. There's a lot to cover in Scripture. It is the whole counsel of God. So as you go to Scripture, ask Him to open your eyes, to open your heart, so that you see where you fit in. Because this is about you as well. It is to you as well. But you got to exercise grano de mostaza of faith. you got to exercise some faith on it. All right? So, so pray. When you go to the Word, pray. Ask Him to open you. Uh, you're after the big picture. 
You're after the, the main storyline, the meta-narrative that will feed your soul as you realize how big your God is, how holy, how worthy, and how much He cares about little old you. It's utterly astounding. Okay? Susie and I have uh, a precious ministry with Darlene Sabatini. Uh, some of you will remember her. Uh, this, this is to say that Scripture is for everybody, from the youngest to the oldest, right? Well, Darlene would be among the oldest. She used to be a regular, active member here at IBC. Many of you will remember her. Um, she was a Sunday school teacher. She was a fellowship coordinator. She was missions promoter. For years now, she's been confined to a wheelchair in a senior citizen's residence. She does suffer from dementia, which uh, is, you know, a progressive thing. No family here in Spain to care for her, except her church family. So there's a group um, called Angels of Darlene. It's a WhatsApp group that pray for her. Some are able to visit her periodically. Susie and I do this every week, go out to the residence where she lives. And you may be asking in your mind, can, can someone actually still be discipled in the Word while failing in mind and memory? Darlene is an amazing person. She can still smile. She can still laugh. She can still cry. Um, here's what we do. Start with some light conversation about this and that, or sometimes some heavy conversation if things are happening that we have to discuss with her. But we'll spend the last portion of our time reading from the Word. We'll read a portion of a psalm or a, or a whole psalm to her. She listens intently. Sometimes we ask a question, have an interchange about it. And then we'll read some story from the Gospels. She always listens very closely, and sometimes we'll interject, I praise the Lord, amen. Sometimes we'll ask her questions and have some interesting exchanges. She can come up with some remarkable insights, even with her dementia. Other times she'll just break into tears over something. We just keep trying to stimulate her mind, connect with her heart, help her recall who she is in Christ. This is what God wants to do with us every time we go to the Word. Stimulate our mind and our spirit, connect with our heart, and remind us who we are in Christ in God's eyes by faith. We usually close by singing a hymn or two, and it's amazing how, you know, the, the past memories work better. Ten minutes after we leave, you can ask her, have you seen David and Susie today? No. She won't remember that we were there. But we start singing, standing on the promises of God, my King. She can sing every word. Amazing. Just pulls it right up out of everything. Close saying the Lord's Prayer together. She doesn't miss a word. You see, there were many years when Darlene was a student of the Word, and now even in her her failing, ailing years, she's reaping what she sowed. You're going to reap what you sow. 
in order to get a better grip on the word, you got to put the gray matter to work. The human brain is an amazing organ. And it needs formatting. And when to format it, young people, is now when the gray matter is still soft and pliable. Yeah? So to get a good grip on the word, you need to engage it, your brain, on five levels. I'm sure you've heard this. You start with hearing the word. Paul says faith comes by hearing, doesn't he? You continue by reading the word. John in Revelation says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this book. You continue by studying. Uh, remember the Bereans? They examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was telling them was true. They studied. It's not a curse to study, it's a joy to inform your mind and your heart. And you continue by memorizing. Psalm 119.11, what does it say? We sang it this morning. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against me, you. Actually, that wasn't the one we sang, was it? But we should have. We can sing that one next. <laughs> Hiding his word in our hearts is what's going to keep us off the paths of sin. And finally, meditation. Psalm 1-2. Meditating day and night on God's instruction. That's what God expected. That's why He gave us this huge book. How can we ever wrap our mind around all of it? Uh, you may be familiar with the hand. It's frequently how we remember these five. I like that because it suggests you're getting a good grip on the word. You see, the pinky is just here. You hear it, and all you've got is a pinky's worth of the word of God. It's grip. Your grip on it and its grip on you. It needs all five for you to get a solid grip on the word. And sometimes on the palm, they will write, now, apply. Yeah, obviously, you got to apply. And the application is so that you can carry that cross that you're called to bear following Jesus. Right? And you got to complement this. Obviously, this is recommendable for each of us personally, but then you've got to complement these activities by participating in a small group study. Now, that can be Sunday school. Got some great Sunday school options here. That can be weekday Bible studies. I understand, ladies, some of yours are getting back together starting this week. That might be zone groups that we used to have. We ought to try to get those functioning again. It uh, might be family devotional time. Anybody practice that in your family still? <sighs> Hope so. Yeah, family devotional time where you're helping format the younger ones. They help format you too, right? Youth and university groups, they meet on every other Friday. They're doing small group Bible study together. You see, small groups allow us to share thoughts, reactions, questions with others. It's what the Proverbs calls iron sharpening iron. It's part of the process. It's supposed to be part of the process in your life. What small group are you participating in that stimulates you in your growth in the Word? You see, this is how we get a deeper grip on the Word, and the Word gets a deeper grip on us. 
It's more than just knowing the information communicated in the Bible. The important thing is to receive it into yourself as your authority for life. That's what moves you to practice it. Because otherwise, you're just engaging in self-deceit. If you don't practice the word in the details of your life, you're just building your house on sand, right? So the substance of our spiritual life is the word received as our authority. It's the voice of my king speaking to me, guiding me day by day. You got it? When did this ever sink into me? As to how urgent it is? I want to end with just this brief word of testimony. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, My father was a pastor all my years growing up. My mother was a pastor's daughter. So, you know, it was like getting it from both sides. Mm, I bless my parents for what they sowed into my heart. I knew the Bible reasonably well as a child and as a young person. But I was a Sadducee, you know. I really thought, oh, got this made. Got all that right here. Got it made. University was really a time of trial. So when I was down and out after an excessively long university career, (laughs) I discovered I was essentially burned out and spiritually bankrupt. How could this happen to me? A preacher's kid with all that spiritual knowledge that I had. I discovered I had hidden idolatries all over the place in my life. And I didn't know what to do about them, how to get rid of them, how to stop pursuing those idols. So I fled from my discontentment and my relational failures, like Jonah running away from his call to Nineveh. Yep, went the same direction he did, although we were going opposite directions. I understand that he running away from his call to Nineveh, jumped on a boat in the Mediterranean, headed towards Spain, Tarshish, often identified with Spain. Of course, Jonah mm, met a storm at sea, and he didn't make it to his desired destination, did he? But you know what? I made it all the way here. (laughs) Spent two years in Granada, Far from the temptations and distractions of my former life, studying Spanish, teaching English, hungrier than ever for some serious content and direction in my life. And that's where I found myself devouring a Spanish bilingual New Testament, Spanish-English bilingual New Testament. Yeah, it was good news for modern man, Dios llega al hombre in in Spanish, it, it, you know, it was the one with those, some of you older folks will remember the, the version that had those little stick figure illustrations. Interesting. Reading and meditating on God's truth in another language context revolutionized my spiritual life. Brought me back to my senses, just like the prodigal son. Got me back on track with God's good purposes opened my stopped up ears so try reading the Bible in one of your other languages (laughs) or in some new language or maybe just a different translation a different version 
can do that for you. Maybe even get you a real hard copy. <laughs> that would be revolutionary, wouldn't it? Instead of just your phone or your iPad or whatever. Mm. I love to mark in my Bible, even make notes. Mm. Some people, that's a sacrilege. And if you prefer your phone version, it's better than nothing. Whatever it takes to get you into the Word. And I'm asking you for that this morning on God's behalf. Will you commit to reading the Bible every day that's left in this new year? Maybe you miss a day. No pasa nada. Maybe you miss several days. Oh, no, the guilt trip. It's not about legalism. It's not about just checking something off your list to make you feel better about yourself. That's not it at all. God is not sitting up in heaven keeping score on you. Get rid of that notion. If you'll get into the Word, it'll help you be free of that awful caricature of God. He's right beside you. He's in you if you are a believer in Him. Helping you, encouraging you, cheering you on in your daily struggles. And if you read His Word more regularly, you're going to become convinced of this. Ask Him to give you a deeper hunger for the Word. It's your daily bread. It is the sustenance that will give you, your insides, some real content, some firmness, some stability, some mm, bravery as you face the challenges. So this is my prayer for you this morning from Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the question that goes with it, what will it take in your life for the Word of Christ to dwell in you richly? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, we bless your name for the gift of your Word. Thank you for speaking with all that weighty authority. Thank you for acting perfectly in line with all that you spoke even to your very last breath and last drop of blood. Thank you, Holy Savior, for sealing your word with your own death and resurrection. It's what makes your word so trustworthy as we begin to get into it and put it into practice and discover that your truth is absolute truth and it's the truth that we need that will truly set us free I pray for us as a congregation, Lord, that we will fix our eyes on this goal, that we will be hungry for more of your word, your truth, your perspective, your light in our lives this year. May you guide us. May you encourage us. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for being our comforter and our teacher. We long for your hand heavily upon each one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.